All right, guys and gals, we have one of my really good friends in the car business here, uh, former 20 group uh, brethren, I guess, and um, a guy who who's really has a mind for service and for uh, anything to do with repairing cars. He sells a few cars here and there too, but he's going to walk us down the path of how to make money in our fixed ops. And what should our, you know, what should our labor rates be? What should uh, our tech makeup look like? How many bays do we need? All these type things that every one of us have questions about because Jeff, you and I know how to sell cars, but you know, run a repair facility. I'm not sure we're good for that. I've got more notes on this episode than I think any other episode. This has been awesome. So stay tuned. This is going to be great, guys. Welcome to the Independent Dealer Podcast, the podcast for auto dealers to learn and grow together. Here are your hosts, Luke Godwin and Jeff Watson. All right, Matt, give us all just a quick overview of uh, where you came from, what you do, um, you know, maybe your day-to-day responsibilities so we can all kind of have a background before we jump into this uh, discussion. Yeah, so I grew up in the service business. My dad had service stations. Um, I ran a service station for him from 2003 until 2010. Went out of my own, opened up my own independent repair garage, towing service, and now I have a body shop. And what's the name of that place? Campus Automotive in Blacksburg, Virginia. And guys, if guys and girls, if you if you ever get a chance to go to this place, it is the freaking Taj Mahal's of service centers. I mean, just a beautiful place spotless clean everywhere <laughs> you know the outside is beautiful there's no junk laying around i mean it's 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 the way it's supposed to be done yeah we try to keep it nice <laughs> as nice as we can anyways yeah yeah we need to post some pictures on here matt you have to send us something we can hook it up to this episode people can kind of get kind of a, a visual idea of the kind of operation that matt runs so matt tell us again so how many bays do you have? How many mechanics? What kind of service are you getting through like volume wise, just so we can kind of have a basis of this conversation? Yeah. So in total, we have 30 employees, um, have five technicians, three service riders, a shuttle driver, general manager, four tow truck drivers, three dispatchers. Um, wow. and in the body shop, we have 10 people, two estimators, a painter, three body men, prepper sander, detailer, and a production manager. Jeez, please. It's a big operation. That off quick. <laughs> yeah. So 30 people in total. That's he awesome. Has, he has a Mako franchise, um, but it's not your typical Mako. Uh, again, when Matt does something, he does it ridiculously beautiful, and the work is pristine. It's, it's a real body shop, but just franchise has another company. Yeah. Okay. So but service. that's on location, right? Yep, it's all on location. Okay. And we do a okay. little used car. We sell a few used cars, too. Oh, okay. Wow. Do it all, yeah. right? So what would you say your makeup is? I mean, 99, 95% retail stuff. You're doing just customers off the street, individual yes. customers, or do you have accounts with new car, used car stores? Or So on the repair side, it's all retail. Mm-hmm. Every bit of it, other than the, what, the little bit of recon I do when I do some used cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all retail. On the towing mm-hmm. side, we do private property towing. So we have business-to-business accounts. Um, we do work for AAA. We have um, contract with the, the police departments for accident towing. The body shop side, of course, we have um, uh, relationships with insurance companies, direct repair program relationships with them. Do some retail customers there too. But the majority of it is retail and business to business. Cool. 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 So, so what I'm really interested in, Luke, and maybe we can go down this avenue is, you know, my thoughts as, as, a, as an independent dealer, we – 
some of us have service shops that are on site. Some of us have service shops off site. Some of us don't do it at all. But for those of us that are putting our toe into service, where do we need to be focusing on? How do we gauge that? And to set that up, I've always been of the opinion that my repair shop, and I just have four bays that are attached to the back of my uh, retail facility. And I've always looked at it as just a straight up cost saving effort. The only reason I have it is because then I can pay these guys X amount as opposed to going down the street and paying someone else. I've never really looked at it as a profit center or a place to actually build in services and, and get outside work. I mean, wh where is that balance and how do we need to be looking at that as an independent dealer? I think that's a huge problem with independent dealers is we don't think of it as its own business and it needs to be run as a business. Talk about that, man, is how, because um, you, you've seen both sides. He's been in a 20 group with me. How important is it is to, to run a service facility like a service facility? Well, I think you need to run it as a profit center because it is a profit center. And when you look at your util utilization of your building and your, and your employees, you need to make sure that you're getting a return on investment for, for what you have there. So first, get your return on investment on your technicians or employees, and then return on investment on your entire facility. And then once you start to figure out, you know, how many hours am I working? How many hours am I billing for my technicians? And how much money am I collecting? Then you start to see, well, you know, if I added a little customer payback into this, like this is this can be some real money because I'm already paying my expenses now with my recon work. Now, if I add in retail off the street customer pay work, now all of a sudden there's a, it's a profit center, if that makes sense. And that's where so many dealers, I think, miss that is that if if you set up and and I did this, I set up my original plan was just to do internal work right but then as you go to 20 groups and you see other dealers doing it you realize real quickly that it is it's a huge profit center how do you make the switch from being um internally focused to to getting that customer pay work what, what should we do there so it needs to go from and your mindset has to shift number one but it needs to go from being um an expense which which a lot of people consider that as an expense so it needs to go from being an expense to a, a profit retail profit center, but I think it's all in your mind. And so if you decide, hey, I wanna diversify my business, do a little bit more. Um, if I figure out what my margins should be, like I might be able to turn a profit on this and I might be able to get this service center to pay the entire fixed expenses for the entire dealership and then turn a profit too, then like, you see the magic starts to happen. And that's, mm -hmm. that's so important. And a lot of people won't know this, but in a new car store, your fixed ops are supposed to pay your fixed expenses. Um, and we talked about fixed expenses last week. So I think uh, that's so important. We, we would all be scared to think about how to do that, but lead us down a path of how we get to that point. So I think the first step is um, which they call it absorption rate, right, by the way, right. for the new car deals, they call it absorption rate. But I think that the, the first step is saying, okay, sit, you know, sit down and say, okay, how many bays do I have to work in and how many technicians do I have? First step. So if okay. I have give us, three, give me that math, Matt, <laughs> you, right, you, so, you were about to do it. Okay. All right. If so I got four bays. How many techs should I have? Jeff, we're going down a path. You gotta, you gotta stay with me. Follow <laughs> All right, man. All right. But we're going, we're going down the rabbit hole. Okay. You. So first, we need to figure out what we have. 
what we currently have, how many technicians we have, how many bays we have. Okay. Once we've determined that, next step is we need to determine what um, a fair rate, a fair labor rate for our market is. A prevailing rate is what they call it in the body shop business. So let's find that prevailing labor rate. And then, then we need to find out how many hours our technicians are working per day. So if one technician works eight hours a day, theoretically, we should multiply that eight hours by that prevailing labor rate, let's say $100. So that's $800 is what you should be collecting from that technician every day. So if you have three technicians, multiply that by three, that's $2,400. Now, all you're thinking about right now is what you currently have. So you're multiplying a prevailing labor rate by how many hours are on the floor, by how many technicians you have, then you can come up with a baseline number of, okay, this is what I want to get out of these three guys per day. Then you multiply that by five. So what did I say? 2,400 24, 24 times, times five. five. So we're going to do that number real quick. Do that, do that <laughs> math. Do that math. That's $2,000. That's $12,000. Right? <laughs> yeah. So this is what you can do a, a week. A week. That's what you should be doing in labor a week. And most of the time in in independent automotive um, aftermarket world, we usually do 50-50 uh, labor to parts mix. Now, you know, 60-40, something like that. So we would say, you know, if we're doing 12,000 in labor, we should be doing another 12,000 in parts. Um, so that puts us at about $24,000. And that's gross. That's net gross that's money. That's total, right? sales. total sales. Total sales. So I should be doing We don't think of gross like what you think of gross because right. you're thinking of gross like GP. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm thinking of gross. I'm thinking of total oh, sales revenue. first yeah. and then gross second. Um, so once you figure out that math, that gives us about $24,000 um, a week in sales. So benchmark for our margin on our parts which is the next piece of it we should be getting somewhere between 50 and 60 percent margin on those parts and i'm just talking about retail customers i'm not talking about your internal stuff just your retail customers between 50 and 60 percent so if you want 60 percent margin on a four dollar spark plug you multiply it by two and a half you see what i'm saying because margin's different than markup so we're getting now we're getting the, the, the correct margin for our parts, which is between 50 and 60%, between 12 and 18% on our tires. And now we're starting to make a little money. So if our labor cost, if our labor cost stays about 30% of what our labor sales is, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden we got labor margin too. So on a $24,000 sales week, our gross profit goal is somewhere between ten dollars and $12,000, if that makes any sense. Well, so now you're starting to see how that compounds when you add bays, add techs, add these different things, and how you can add that retail on top of your reconditioning work and create that profit center. That's a big number, um, and that's and that ten thousand dollar profit is before our real fixed expenses come into play, right? Yeah. So, so that's after your tax and your sales costs, right? Our cost of goods and because that's cost of goods, like right. our sales, our, our service advisor and our technicians 
and our parts cost is all in cost of goods, and then everything below that is just our fixed expenses. Right. So does that make sense, Jeff? Yeah, I already burned up my first notepad, so I had to grab another one. <laughs> all right. <laughs> This is like, this is just uh, gold for me. Um, help help me set that up again real quick. Uh, my, that initial question I had was, how, what is my tech? So you're saying, hey, this is my current bays and my current techs, but what's the ratio between service bays, techs, and service writers? What do you see as okay. the best practices for that? Because I want to know if I'm utilizing my space. Right. So what we usually, what we really like to see is one service writer for every three techs. That's about the most he can handle, okay. especially if he's ordering parts and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When I say service rider, I'm saying, you know, for a small shop like me, he's handling everything, unfortunately. He's getting parts. He's doing scheduling. He's also dealing with some customers, unfortunately. So I'd probably so have him overtaxed. Normally, we would like to see one service rider for three techs, and he should be able to handle all those tasks. It's not easy, obviously. Yeah, he's, um, he's overworked. He's overworked a little bit, may need a little help, um, but that's and typically the ratio we like to see. And how many lifts does my techs need? Do they need one, one per? I think one bay per tech. Really? I think if you get your process down, one bay per tech. Now, it depends on what you do and what your mix of business is. Like if I'm rebuilding transmissions, I know that one bay per tech's not going to work because I'm I got a I got a, a R and I the transmission. I got to yeah, yeah. send it to another tech to rebuild and then I got to reinstall it. So you're talking, there's a three to four day um, gap. So if you're doing a lot of motors, transmission, yeah. differentials, some heavy, heavy duty work, like he may need two bags. Okay. But for the most part, most of your recon work, you ought to be able to do um, in one bay. For sure. And especially if you're making, if you're doing a lot of the profit stuff like brakes and tires and well, tires, not necessarily profit on the front of it, they can be. But um, oil changes, oil changes, flushes, well, and things like that. Let me stop you on that one. Oil changes. I always thought that was kind of a loss leader to get him in the door. So you know, uh, for some people, it is. Okay. If you have a really good process for doing a, a complete and accurate vehicle courtesy check when it comes in the door, like for a retail customer, um, it's an opportunity. Number one, it brings car count in, but it's an opportunity to upsell other items that the car may need you know, wiper blades, filters, flushes, some okay. of the other maintenance items. Um, and repair That's what items. I thought is the goal. I can't, I can't, I can't get the cars in, get them serviced like a place like the Jiffy Lube or the Speed Lubes or whatever those joints are that have got bulk oil and bulk filters and the drive oil. You know, they've got, they're all set up for it. Well, I'm set up for that too, Jeff. you got $10 an hour tech working on your car. Well, you can't have a... I mean, you honestly, you probably can't have a B-Tech doing oil changes. It, it, the money is not going to make sense. But if you go back and listen to, um, I think I think Marshall and I talked about this in one of the podcasts, was about how your, your sales walk around by that service advisor, it should, in fact, be sales like you were selling a car, right? Yeah. And it should be, it should be number one, to cover your tail if, if there's some damage on the car or something like that. But also, and cover your tail if someone comes in with bald tires, you got to do the same walk around every time right. on you, each car. Theoretically, you can pre-sale oh, yeah. maintenance services at the counter before you even take the car in the back to check it. So pre mm -hmm. by pre-selling a few maintenance services, you can you can now all of a sudden you turn that little oil change into something bigger. So that's the goal. If and, you buy I, right on your oil and filters, you can still make oh, your yeah. margin oil on your oil and filters okay. if you're buying right. And you've got to be buying filters and um 
full by bulk. You got to. Um, you can't go to O'Reilly's or Advance and buy it by the box. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You've got to buy, and we we buy three hundred fifty gallons at a time. Yeah. So I mean, you've got to buy so a lot. If you're going to go down that, I just don't. I, I look at my shop and I think, oh man, I'm, where am I going to have a bulk oil tank somewhere I'm, with the different grades? It doesn't take up that much. It's room. not, and they have these new systems now that are that are container type systems that are gravity fed, and they sit up and they stack beautifully. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I can send you a picture of that, but it's you know it's not that big of a commitment to have, and you buy it so much cheaper. And if you use a filter company like Service Champ, which is here at this BIADA convention yep. this yep. week, I mean, there's you know you're buying filters at a dollar seventy five, and you know air filters at two dollars and thirty six cents, or at you know at Advance and O'Reilly and AutoZone, you're going to be paying sometimes double that. Oh yeah, yeah. So you're you're saving so much, you're saving so much money. You actually can have a margin on those oil changes too. So and with that, sorry, go ahead, Luke. So not only have your margin on the oil change, but when you're doing your own recon work, your expense won't be as high. Mm-hmm. Well, now tell me, help me with this. What should my makeup of techs be? Should I have a whole bunch of C's to, to do this kind of stuff and then a couple of B's and A's or should I try to hire top dollar guys or there, I, I get confused with. Right. You know? So there used to be, there used to be a model for this and you would have like one A, two B's and a C, something mm-hmm. like that. Now the model's out the door because you can't find them, right? You can't find them. There's a shortage of technicians. So what we're finding now is we kind of got to get some, get some, in some cases we get all C's and we got to make them B's right. and make them A's. We got to mm-hmm. train them up. Um, so now because there are more open jobs than there are technicians to fill those jobs, like you got to take what you can get. And as long as they have their character, as a person is good and they have good behavioral traits, you can train and them and they're yeah. good for your culture. Yeah. Then you can train them up into where you need them to be. Mm-hmm. Limit your work to their skill set instead of making them do things that and they're not qualified for. And that's so important is, is number one, we should hire, we're hiring techs or trying to hire techs, culture and morals and character because they, you know, you can train everything else, but you can't train those. Can't train. Oh, and, and what, and what I have found at hiring loop techs who are just young guys who maybe didn't graduate high school, um, but they've been tinkering around with doing radios and things like this. If you take those guys and you get them in your shop and you get some, some good program to train them all, man, you can train those guys up. My best, my, maybe not my best, but really close to my best tech right now, we hired him and he did oil changes all day long. Now he is one of my best techs. That's Absolutely. amazing. And now we got more than more so than ever. We got access to very very uh, inexpensive training platforms. If you're a Napa Car Care Center or you're a CTI through Advanced Auto Parts, they're, they're they have training programs for as little as like twenty five bucks a month. Technician wow. training programs. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Napa, the Napa uh, Auto Care program is probably the best and mo- most robust if you sign on with them for mm-hmm. technician training and mm-hmm. different. Um, strategies for for running the shop and that's a, that's another um that's another rabbit hole but uh, just quickly mention every every part store has its own program and i'm i'm with o'reilly's um just because o'reilly's is right next door to us our napa is not huge in our area uh world pack has it as well can you and i think autozone has one with nida can you uh talk through those programs and how they benefit your shop 
So every, every like, like Luke said, every parts store has a program. Um, some are more robust than others. Um, Napa's probably the best because their business model is uh, B2B and not B2C where Advanced and AutoZone are big boxes in O'Reilly too and they're, they do a they're lot of consumer, customer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. straight to consumer stuff. Um, so Napa's, Napa's built out the best and, and Advanced's CTI program which was part of CarQuest uh, Technical Institute. Okay. When Advanced bought that, they bought that, that platform too. So you basically just get signed, you get signed on with the parts company. They help you move through. Napa even has uh, technician training. They have assistance with signage and marketing and website and um, point of sale systems and buying programs for different, you know, um, bulbs and clamps and all these different um, avenues for you know for building your your shop business yeah. it helps you do that and that's and it's important because so many car dealers are car dealers right and rebates <laughs> don't forget about oh, yeah. rebates because <laughs> these especially with advanced auto parts um rebate you'll get rebated money back to you you know in a form of a check yeah we get that and so mm -hmm. they all have it so you, that's money straight to you um and that's, that's bottom line number bottom line dollars yeah. So, so let's, let me ask you that question as far as sourcing and parts goes. I mean, do you find that it's advantageous to stick with one source or do you shop multiple or, or like I know my guy, I mean, we order from O'Reilly and Napa and Amazon and eBay and LKQ and Rock Auto. And I mean, we've got them coming in from everywhere we can find them. Am I losing leverage because I'm not spending a lot of money no. with one guy? No. Or is it good to just try to find the best part at the cheapest price? It's good. It's good. I think you need a first call. You need, you need a guy that you like, know, and trust as your first call. So the, usually the closest shop, the closest store to your shop should be your, your first, first call. Because right. they're close, they're fast, and you should have a good relationship with them because you're their neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, so you need a first call to do your basic stuff and get as much as you need. Brake pads, rotors, things like that. And then, and then you can go back and say, okay, sort, because from that first call forward, there's, there's no reason to stay loyal with anybody else. Okay. So you get what you can get, where you can get it, parts are everywhere. If you're having good luck with one place, you know, for one particular item, then stick with them on that and then just move around like you're doing. I think that's totally, Totally fine because you want to maximize on a retail customer, maximize your margin, number one, and then on your, you know, reconditioning side, minimize your expense. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And that's yeah. not as time sensitive. I know with my recon, if it takes two or three weeks to get apart, you know, it's not good. Uh, not two or three weeks, two or three days, not good. But with a retail customer, you just can't have that, right? I mean, it's got to be there within and that's two a, and three minutes. I think there's a fine line between price savings and getting that car ready because you can't have a lift tied up because that's costing you money, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because, you, you you know, it's opportunity cost because if you think of that shop, you know, labor is, uh, you know, it's finite. You've only it, got, so much, only got so much. And see, yeah. once, it, once it goes bad and expires, it's gone forever. Right. You don't ever get it back. So it's kind of <laughs> like milk. It's kind of yeah. like milk at the grocery store. Like, you know, you sell some of it, and some of it you don't sell, and it goes bad, and it goes in the dumpster. <laughs> You're spilling it all over the place, man. I'll tell you what. It's all over the place. So let me ask you that. Let's go down that road if we can. 
what about labor and your pay? What, what would you recommend is the best pay plan? I've gone at my place, we've done hourly, we've done hourly plus flat. Now we've gone to just a straight flat rate labor pay. Is that, what do you find works the best? I think the best is, um, well, this model's kind of changing too, but right now the best thing to do would be a flat rate that, that has a little bit of a bump when you hit certain milestones. Like if you get to 30 labor hours, maybe you get a little bump. 35 labor hours, you get a little bump. 40 labor hours, you get a little bump. So it gives them incentive to push to the next hmm. tier to try to increase that, to, to increase that productivity. And then when they really get up, they can really start making some money. So let's talk about that. And everybody, everybody listening to this hopefully knows about uh, productivity and, and efficiency and things like that, proficiency as well. Should every tech be 100% proficient or are we, are we looking for 125? What, what, what do you see as most techs doing and what is the goal? I think that, there, well, there's probably, there, I mean, there's best case scenario uh, goals and models for this but for me personally my opinion is like if you got a guy on the floor let's let's bill an hour for him for being on the floor i agree 100 percent. and if you got you got five guys you're going to have one guy that's going to do 125 and one guy that's going to do 75 but at the end of the day let's get let's be let's add it all up and and get you know 100 percent of the hours that were open so 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 help me help me understand that in my terms so if i got a tech who's let's say kind of unofficially clocking 80 hours in a pay period, he should be a one-to-one, -one, like a flat to clocked hours. Is that what you mean by hundred yeah. percent or so a really, really good tech yes. will be more than that. Yeah. Right. So and that's what I tell my techs. I say, look, we want you to be at 90 hours or whatever a pay period. You should be able to flag more than what you're physically here. Right. Is that, so that's the goal. Yeah. So most can, but, you know, technicians are just people, right? So some people, it's just like salesmen. Some people are going to come in and sell 30 cars and some people are going to sell eight. Right. Mm -hmm. So technicians are the same, right? So, but what we're trying to do as a group is get together and, and, and be selling enough hours to cover the hours that you're open. And it's that's so hard. Of, and it's hard to do. It's yeah. hard to do. <laughs> it's hard to yeah. do. Really? But you know, okay. just like a salesman, you're going to have, you're going to have the eight car guys and you're going to have the 30 car guys. And it's no different with technicians because some are faster and, and, and some are, you know, slower. And so it's, it's just, it's just part of the game. Let's the big talk. issue I run into is that, is that sometimes the techs and I understand their situation, they want to be paid for everything, even if there's not a Mitchell rate for it, because they're doing these odds and ends and these side deals or they're putting a GPS in or they're got some bolt that rusted over. Yes. And so they're always asking for more. But rarely, I think, do you get back on the – That's a great question, Jeff. And I, I, won't, I want you to, to talk about that, Matt, because I have that same issue. You'll take a car back that a customer just bought, and you just need them to do something real quick. How do we address that in our shops? Well, we need to pay them. But we don't need to be paying for – like, if, if, if you're going to put a GPS in the car, you need to establish a rate up front for what they should get paid to do that GPS in that car and make sure everybody knows what that is. It's an hour. You know, it's, it's an hour. It's an hour. It's an hour. Boom. Yeah. Like some of them are going to take you five minutes and some of them are going to take you two hours, right. but it's an hour because sometimes you're going to be the bug and sometimes yeah. you're going to be the windshield, right? <laughs> so, so like, they got to know like, that. 
the standard becomes five minutes for an hour of pay. And then if it ever goes to two hours, then they're going to ask for that extra hour. Oh, we couldn't find a ground on this one, or we couldn't find a power wire. I need to get, I need an hour bump on this. But that's the reason you've got to have a, you've got to go to your tech and say, this is what it is. I'm not paying you a dime more. It's what it is. Right. You got to have, and you got to develop that trust with them too and establish like, um, you know, make sure your culture right and, and establish like a set of, um, fundamentals or a set of like behaviors that you want your organization to to follow um and then and then make it clear to them that hey you know like i said sometimes you're going to be the bug and sometimes you're going to be the windshield but you're going to at the end of the day you're still doing better than what you would have done yeah you know? so sometimes it's going to now I'm, if you get a car that comes in if you get a a, a car that comes in and it's rusted and it's just yeah. bad. And you're putting, and you're fabricating brake lines, and then you're like cutting bolts off, and like, how do you, how do you address that? Is it, is it uh, the time they spit on the car? Yeah, you need to give them a little bump for that, and like when a torch fires up, get a little torch time. Okay. Too. Yeah. I mean stuff like that, because that's the service riders got to be aware of that, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it's because you know those are outlier situations that are beyond mm-hmm. the scope of what a Mitchell or All Data Guide will will provide so, you a time for so on that on that note how do we address that with our customer because we've already we've already estimated to the customer hey this job's going to take 1.5 hours uh, well we're, we're not talking hours or customer we're talking it's going to take this much in labor and this much in parts but then all of a sudden we realize that we got something that's tough how do we address how do we address that with our uh, with our customer and when do we address that with our customer so up front before is better like when you're having so you call discussion, them, okay. Uh, okay. Before, yeah. So like when you're before you even call them with that estimate on that repair, you can be like, "Hey, look, you know it's really rusty." I think what we do is with our system, since we have a digital inspection system and we're sending out pictures mm-hmm. of the of the problems with the car, you know, we're having that discussion and saying, you know, you see how these bolts are rusted, you know, okay, you know, this is how much it's going to be to fix it. Because if you call people back after the fact and say, "Hey, it's going to be more." Like people get upset about that, right? Yeah. You would get upset about that. Like sure. if a roofer come out and give you an estimate on putting your roof in, he starts and he's like, "Yeah, man, it's gonna be five grand more." You're like, "No, no, no, no," <laughs> right? So and your shingles are already off. And your shingles are off, and you're screwed, right? Same thing with auto repair. But at the same time, like I think on the front end, we can knock some of this out on the front end, and then if it if it if an outlier situation comes along during the repair that needs to be addressed, you know, let's say that we're we're doing hypothetically we're doing a time and belt and water pump on a honda we pull it off and then we see that maybe the um, cam seals are leaking on or something like that you know a well a well documented um explanation in a picture and just telling people the truth will go a long way because not because people know that like it's hard to estimate so you can't see yeah an estimate is an estimate sure and remember that too. And, and so, and that leads me down another path. Let's talk about service advisors real quick. And for for me, I almost think of a service advisor at this point as another sales person in my office. That's really what they are now. They are they're advising service. But how important is it to have great service writers and service writers who are trained to sell properly? Because this comes into to selling property. Yeah, because if they can sell, um, you know. They can really, really make you some money. Right. And mm-hmm. I think they should be part of the sales team. They should be part of the sales training. Because look what you guys, you guys spend a tremendous amount of money on sales training as dealers. Like sure. a tremendous amount of money. Um, 
And, and so they need to be part of the sales training process and treated like salesmen and compensated in some way to reward them for being salesmen. Um, and how do we do that? Because how is a service writer paid compared to, um, they're not flat. I mean, they, they've got to make some money too, right? Right. Well, what you, like to, it, what you like to see is that sales cost be about 7% of your sales. So figuring out a, a, a variable compensation based on that 7% number. Um, so if they come in, so let, let's just say that I have a hypothetical. A customer comes in for an oil change, and my service advisor, advisor did a walk around, they sell them uh, wiper blades, they sell them tires, alignment, and they sell them uh, a transmission flush and a coolant flush. Do I give them a commission per item they sell like that? No, not per item. Okay. Unless you're trying to do a spiff or something, but then they get used to spiffs, and that's not really yeah, the right way to do it. Yeah. The right way is to set it up on the front end so that they get compensated okay. based on their total sales for the week. So they got a base salary. Base salary. Then they have a little extra and if they get numbers. Okay. And then it bumps okay. if you get a number. And then it bumps if you hold your GP. Okay. And then it bumps if you have, like, like you ought to give them a bump for Google five-star Google reviews. I agree. I like, pay them per, per review. Um, you know, hit them with the five dollar, you know, something. Give them so, something and reward them for that behavior. Yeah. Maybe I should ask this question in the beginning, and I think I know Luke's answer. And and your service shop is its own business. You guys don't run your. I mean, obviously, Matt, you don't. We know that. But as a dealer, me as an independent dealer, do I need to set my service shop, even though it's attached to the back of my sales floor? Does it need to be its own set of books, its own set of LLC, its own setup, so that I can really track it like it's its own well, no, business? No, because if you go to the Honda store down the street, like they don't separate it out, do they? No, but, but then, so, now you have your own financials for for each set of your of your business because you need to know your financials for that set of your business, right? Yeah, now. but I mean, but not a, a separate you? business. You don't have to have a separate. I, you know, I I just set it up and I use QuickBooks because I don't sell mm -hmm. a whole lot of cars, so I use QuickBooks. So I have it separated in classes. Okay. So I got my dealership, then my towing service, and then my repair shop in a class, okay. so I can see a snapshot of how we're doing. But it doesn't okay. have a separate set of books. You're not talking, no. when you look but at your you, gross profit for the month, you're tying everything in. Car sales might have a right. line item, but service has a line item. Now, Luke, you keep yours separate, right? Your Mine's shop totally has its separate. own, I mean, you have its own credit card, its own bank account, its own. And, right? I, and I, did, I did that for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, percentage of ownership is different than the percentage of ownership. In the, so there, there's other reasons yeah. I do that. And that makes you know, sense. probably in the long run, once I own everything 100%, I'll probably bring it back together. Um, yeah, plus you have some, you know, you're doing some in-house financing and there's yes. some issues related to that. So sure. I completely understand that. Mm -hmm. But as a normal normal day-to-day, -day, I think you just run it in together. Um, your point of sale system can be different and it can it can give you a, a snapshot, a, you know, a guide of how you're doing in your repair shop. And you can use that information on a daily and weekly basis to run it and then set your business up in classes on right. QuickBooks and then, you know, I know DealerTrack does it completely different um, when when they account for that money. But, you know, I think they're, I think you should try to keep it together because you've built your brand, right? So you've worked really hard to build your brand and that brand is worth something and it's powerful. And, and sure, and I, don't, and I don't necessarily recommend, if you are splitting it, you should still operate. We operate as Godwin Motors, even if our, if our service side or- Yeah, but for the book standpoint. Yeah. Now, is, is there any, and maybe Luke, you could speak to this more. My big, 
one of my headaches or hurdles I got to get over is when I, I bring a car in for service. And of course, 99% of them are current customers because I'm buy here, pay here. It's always, well, well can, can you side note that? Can you just tuck that on the back of my loan? You know, like. You should see. So you watch on YouTube, man, it's like, what are you talking about, man? So, so yes, it, it depends, you know, um, we have to do that as buy here, pay here stores a lot. And it's not something you like to do. Um, but if I got a good customer who pays their bills, we do some financing there. I know Matt, you probably use Synchrony or something like that, right? You can use Synchrony or something like that. But, yeah. why, but why not ask them for the money? Why not ask them? No, you can't ask them for yeah. the money. And, and I do yeah. ask for the money. And, when, and always, you, you don't ever get anything you don't ask for, right, Matt? Yeah, because if, if they go down the street to Pet Boys, they're going to charge them. They're going to charge them. Yeah, they can yeah, buy that money. You're not, you're not rolling out of there with your car until someone's paid for it. Yeah, so it's not like you, you, you the reason that they do that is because you let them do it. That's right. It's expectations. So if, if they get the expectation, if the expectation set that you're going to put this at the end of your loan, but if you put that to, at the end of your loan, are your loans paying out all the way? Well, in? are you getting paid? I mean, you know. What we do is we tie it into a monthly payment. So if a customer comes in and let's say, um, if they're a really good customer, I'll finance tires for them, but they'll pay me every month that were, you know, for the next five months. Okay. But let's say the car broke down uh, because it needs a water pump. And I know that if I don't fix that water pump, they're not going to pay. We fix the water pump. Right. And then we yep. tie that side note in and they pay over the next several months to get it paid yeah. for. So I, I think, yeah, cause you're trying to get them to pay. I mean, you don't want the car back. If I get the car back. It's a nightmare. You know, you, that, I mean, you got to do what you got to do there. And I think you that know. each dealer should look at that. But try to get your money if you can. Right. Always yeah. ask. And, and we asked for a down payment on that repair. Because I don't think, because J.D. Byrider, they make them pay, right? I would assume. I, I, you know, I think that's yeah. what their system and what they make you pay. You know, if you finance a car at, you know, Hendrick Motors, even if it's a subprime <laughs> deal, like you you going to pay. Yeah. You're going to pay. Always so, ask. A couple more questions for you, Matt. We wrap this up. Uh, it's just, she's uh, Louise, man. It's, it's, this is definitely something I need, but we're going to have there, to have you back at some point. Sure. Oh my gosh. Is there a, is there a standard flat rate? Because I, I guess that would be my question and maybe it's all completely dependent on market and you got to do your research. But I, I look at this and it's like, well, some guys like, yeah, well my flat rate, my hours of my flat rate don't matter because I'm getting such a high flat rate or vice versa. You guys are got me so slim on what my flat rate is that I've got to bill out 90 to a hundred hours of pay period or I'm not making my ends meet back home. Yeah. Where do you find that, that number? I think that flat rate is probably market specific. I think um, you have to find out what your competition is paying and you have to be competitive with that. Um, so okay. I think that- And then do you add things if they have certifications or if they have their own yes. scan tools or if yes. they have so you know the, experience um, in these things? So the way my so the way my flat rate is is again it 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 has bumps once you hit certain uh, milestones of hours turned you get a bump mm -hmm. in your flat rate pay that's retroactive back to the first hour. Now the only way that you get a raise in my company is if you get ASC certified. So as you move down the path of ASC certification, you get a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so if you're ASC Master Tech, you get the top tier and top level of pay and what is that just for instance at your store top level if you're a master tech you know, if you do if you do 60 hours and you're at top level you know you're going to be making 33 between 33 and 35 dollars an per hour per flat rate turn per flat rate turn yeah that's good money 33 
to $30 per flat rate if you got 60 hours in a pay period in a week. And you have all your ASCs. And you have all your ASCs. Because you remember, that's how you move down the path of getting raised in that way. And where do you start a tech at? Your loot techs, where are they, where are they getting? They have an hourly pay to start. Right. And then and it moves yeah. down from that. And then when you have, um, when you show that you can, can consistently turn over 30 hours and you move to a tier, okay. that's, that's a flat rate tier from the hourly tier. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it's just certifications or what you're going to and what, and what is that baseline? Once they move past um, the 30 hour a week, what's, what's that baseline uh, flat rate? I think it's, Seventeen, $17, something like that, good. roughly. I don't have it in front of me, but it's a... I think I'm overpaying. Slides. You, hey, know, you may be, you may not, because your market may require you to pay. Well, one thing I've found about technicians is the grass is always greener on the other side. You know? sales, sales people too, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. Technicians by nature are not... They do... They're, they're technical-minded by nature, so mm-hmm. they don't... They do one thing really, really well. Right. Like they fix things or they build things. But other things like social interaction and, you know, some of the other things that they they struggle with, that's why you can't ever hardly make a good technician a service ride. Right. Because they can't work outside the scope of what they're good at because they're real like engineer-minded, right? They don't have the social skills and stuff to do the – to have the personalities to be able to get out here and sell sell and do things. So – you're right. It used to be like that. So that's why now more than ever, we got to work on our culture, got to work on our engagement to retain these people because yeah. there ain't a whole lot of technicians left out there. So if yeah. you have them, you better try to keep them. And I'm yeah. not saying coddle them, no. but you have to take care of them. Yeah. And that's why I always joked around their toolbox has got wheels on the bottom, you know, because <laughs> I was about to make that comment. That's so well, you know, <laughs> think about technicians with, with, with toolboxes with wheels on it. Like we set that up as, as, as repair garage. We set that system up of being nomads because, yeah. you know, what other career do you do where you have to furnish your own tools to go to work for somebody? Nowhere, right? Like you, when you go to work, if you work for the power company, they give you a bucket truck and your tools <laughs> and you go fix power lines, right? Like you don't bring your own stuff. They give you climbing gear and everything. Climbing gear and everything. You don't bring your own stuff. So we <laughs> they have to bring their own stuff. Well, you set it up so they to bring their own stuff. When it's time to roll out, they roll it all out. The party hey, words I, I want to give you guys are, and we talked about it in the beginning, culture, and it's so hard to find techs and everyone gets in a scarcity mentality. And I've had it for the last two months with a specific tech that I just, we, we didn't let him go because we were so scared we couldn't replace him, but he ended up souring the culture so badly that we ended up having to cut the strings and let him go. And he got worse outside of here. Thank goodness he wasn't here. But the same day we had a guy walk in off the street. Uh, a buddy of ours um, from my general manager and great guy, just awesome find. So don't be scared to get rid of the bad apples. If you think you're going to be short, you might be short, but what you can't do is have your whole culture suffer because you're just hanging on to someone too long. That's a, that's a great way to end there, Jeff.